research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view. This is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power in Washington, D.C. My co-host, as always, is Eric Eggers. Eric, you're doing well? I mean, look at me, Peter. I'm excellent. <laughs> Good. 2023 have, is off to a great start. And we have me. a special guest. We have a special guest today. Kenny Shu is going to be joining us. Um, he is an author. He's the head of a nonprofit. Um, I took particular delight when I learned this fact uh, because people who don't know, uh, Eric actually uh, does help uh, a lot of students with SAT prep. Um, he uh, has a business, as it were, that does that, does quite good. But our guest today actually scored basically a thousand points higher than you on the SAT. So I, I was thrilled to hear that. Yeah, I know you were. And, uh, <laughs> and, and trust me, your, your message is being sent loud and clear. You got a guy that's went to, you know, has applied to these Ivy League schools. Another author has booked it a lot better than mine and his SAT scores, you know, essentially almost double. So I get it. Kenny, it's great to see you. Why don't, why don't you just take my office next time? Okay? Wow. Well, you know, I didn't go to Oxford, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kenny Shu is our guest here. I've known Kenny for a while. Uh, he is the president of Colorus United, uh, which is an organization committed to race, a race-blind America. His work has appeared lots of places, including the City Journal and the Washington Examiner. He's the author of a terrific book that came out uh, called An Inconvenient Minority, uh, which is certainly a provocative title. Uh, what is the inconvenient minority and why are they inconvenient? The inconvenient minority is the minority that exposes the falsity of the left's racial narrative, and that is Asian Americans. Uh, look, so the left likes to say, okay, we're in a racist country, right? And I've looked at this data. I've seen a lot of the examples that they use. But every time, they always run into a snag. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the snag is the success of Asian Americans, despite the fact that they didn't come from any kind of social background that would otherwise beget so-called privilege. Right. Right. So look, Asian Americans, they come to this country, they basically don't have any money. They don't have any wealth. Uh, but my book, what, what my book shows is that they study and they train their kids extremely hard and self-discipline to study. And as a result, they actually have the highest incomes out of any racial group in America. And they have the highest educational uh, degree attainment out of any group in America. And it, what it shows is that America, the, the racism in America, the racist country, it doesn't make any sense calling America a racist country. Why would a racist country allow a group of minorities to overtake whites <laughs> right. in all of these statistics? Um, so that's what this book exposes. It also talks about, of course, the Harvard discrimination case against Asians, where the left has 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 found such um, 
inconvenience in this narrative that they actually work to discriminate against Asians by actually calling them white or white adjacent or labeling them as a privileged group, even though their histories demonstrate the opposite to be true. I like the term white adjacent. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, you actually are literally white adjacent right now. You know, sitting next to me and Peter. <laughs> but, but it's true. And one of the things I really enjoyed about, I mean, Kenny's story is crazy. And I think specifically what he uncovered in one of these, you know, these Ivy League institutions, Harvard, it, it, it does have a terrible secret. It's a dirty secret. And so, so tell people what the personal score is, right? I mean, I think give people just the, the quick version of what happened to you, what your investigation uncovered, and what's true about how Harvard literally does discriminate against Asians. So Harvard's admissions process we now have the data to understand the, the black box of the Harvard admissions process. And there are three factors that Harvard predominantly uses. A academic score, which Asians score highest out of all the races. An extracurricular score, which Asians score highest out of all the races. And a personality score, which Asians score the lowest out of all of the races. <laughs> Which, by the way, is the most subjective of the three as well, right? I mean, you can measure the others. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Personality is completely subjective. It's 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 completely subjective. And I'll, I'll show you why. Because Asians, you say, okay, well, where are the, where the factors of personality? Here's how Harvard defines it. They measure likability, humor, good leadership skills, social awareness, you know, a desire to impact society. Um, and, you know... You would think, okay, the alumni interview scores should predict that somewhat and how you perform in the alumni interview, Asians score the highest at all the races. Maybe teacher recommendations. I don't know. Maybe maybe that should be what, what shows the personality score. Asians score highest out of all of the races. Council recommendations. Asians score second highest out of all the races. Personality score, Asians score lowest out of mm -hmm. all of the races. Now, do they base that on the interviews or what, what are they – how do they come with this "quote unquote" low personality? There's score? no formal process that Harvard has, <laughs> of course. No formal process, uh, except possibly the process of looking at the Asian kids' race and saying, "Oh no, <laughs> right, 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 right." And uh, this happened to you, right? You applied to Harvard. You had I actually didn't apply to Harvard. You did not apply. I to applied Harvard. to Princeton. You and I applied to, to uh, Wharton. Uh, I, I, I didn't. I didn't want to apply to Harvard actually because you I, knew what was going to happen. I knew what they were looking for at the time. This was back in 2015. Not very many people have heard of the Harvard case, but the Asians did. Yeah, We, we knew what was going on. Um, in the process of exposing this, I've seen it replicated all, all of the other uh, big Ivy League universities. Too. And so what happened in the case? I mean, just so you, you filed a lawsuit through, I think, the process lawsuit, you were able to document the fact that all the data, and what I love about you is you, you know, you bring in a lot of hard data, including uh, stats about Asians and their accomplishments. I mean, and it's, it's interesting to consider all the steps and it's not just Ivy League institutions. You know, I, we talked about College Board and how, you know, College Board is the company that creates the SAT. They administer the SAT. Yeah. And so they, in an effort to become more inclusive, because right, there's this critique that standardized tests are biased towards wealthy Americans, white Americans. And so they, they came out with this partnership with Khan Academy and they said, okay, fine. Hey, this is going to be free. Anybody that wants to can create an account on Khan Academy and you can use this to try to, so it doesn't matter, you know, black, brown, white, whatever you are, here it is. It's free. We, we, we no longer have a racial bias problem. This is going to eliminate discrimination, standardized tests. And then what happened, Kenny? Okay. So what happened was that the Khan Academy uh, tried to create this, this 
um, free practice test that, that they pledge would boost scores for black Americans because black Americans tend to have the lowest SAT scores. And what happened was um, actually those who took, they sent it out to a million students and those who actually went through the 20 hours of Khan Academy test prep uh, actually did improve their score by about 110 points on the SAT, which is significant. And that was true for all demographic groups, including blacks and Hispanics. Um, the problem was that the only people who actually did 20 hours of SAT prep were the Asians. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like statistically, the vast yeah. majority of students that signed up to do that were the Asian American students. Yeah. Yeah, no, a lot of people signed up. A lot of the black but, kids signed up. A lot they, of the they, white kids signed up too. They just didn't follow through. Yeah. So how much of it is this issue, uh, not an issue, but this reality of a sh- support structure? I mean, there, and we know there are obviously exceptions, mm-hmm. but the tendency is, is that Asian families tend to be more uh, encouraging of academic performance, creating those standards, uh, making sure they're doing the 20 hours of prep. How much of a factor do you think that is as it relates to Asian performance in uh, in the academy? Yeah, and I talk about this in the book, An Inconvenient Minority. You have to understand how an immigrant Asian family structure is formed. And this is, again, I'm generalizing, but you know this is based on hundreds of interviews that I had with a lot of different Asian families. So, um, but basically, you know, the, the work, the parents, they work and, but they make sure to devote time after school specifically to give a space for their child to study and to, to have, to, to drill, you know, they would make sure to do, to put after school assignments on top of the homework that they already do. And they actually work with the kid, um, to, to identify places that they need to improve. So they place a very high value on education um, and on after-school drilling and studying. And that that's, by the way, linked to not just better performance on tests, but just better overall self-discipline, better overall um, critical thinking. So these are not things that are just like, oh, you're just preparing for a test. No, you are you are building skills that will help you throughout the rest of your life. And it, here's what I think is crazy is that it's actually now become not politically correct to say that it comes down to that individual performance, whether it's academically or personally, comes down to the family structure. And actually, there's an interesting story. We, I think we talked about yeah. this at one point. But you, do you remember, Peter, the case of when – and we, we had some fun with – you know, we've talked a lot about schools and teachers' unions and the influence that teachers' unions have and how teachers' unions become this kind of like woke army of the political left and the impact that it has on schools. And now you see a lot of parents – as the more they discovered that, that they're, they're leaving these public schools. So, and we talked about the story of the San Francisco school board and you saw for the first time students or members of the school board voted out by these parents because they said, Hey, we wanted you to be working to get schools back open during the pandemic. Instead, you spent all this time talking about like which schools to rename because you had all these problematic things. Right. So you remember that story. Yeah. Okay. And so, and Kenny remembers the story too, because what it indicated was it was presented to us as, well, this is actually the rise of the Asian political force. Because in, in San Francisco, you do have a lot of Asian residents. And so the Asians, because they do care about academic performance, they're the ones that said, hey, you woke lefties. We don't care if this, who the school is named after. We want our kids to be learning and get a good education. And so you saw people get voted out and you got, actually got some Asian people put back on the school board. And that was back in the spring of 2022. But there's more to the story that I did uh, not know. So what happened after that, I, Kenny? I'm not. Yeah. And, and it shows that it shows the limitations of what Asian Americans have achieved in our in our country, because 
yes, we have our attitude towards political problems too often is to say, well, if there's a problem, we just work twice as hard. Mm. Okay, but what if no matter how hard you work, you're still going to be punished for it or actually have that hard work used against you, like Harvard's personality score? Asian score, I mean, Asians are just kicking butt on the math SAT, and they attribute that to a negative personality because I guess they don't <laughs> go out and party enough. Not to get distracted from the school board thing. Anyway, what, what's the stat I, on SAT? Well, what's the stat on the SAT math scores that you told me? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, 55% of the kids in America who score 700 or higher on the math score, so it's 800 point exam, 700 mm-hmm. or higher, 55% of those kids are Asian. Mm. So that's, mm. you know, so Asians are dominating standardized tests, probably one of the reasons why Harvard's looking for excuses, right, to, mm. to yeah. try to like keep them out from these higher end things. Right. Asians, their, their solution is to work harder. But when, they, come, the way, but, that, but, hey, but when they run into political problems, it becomes more challenging. That was the political problem that we have in the San Francisco school board race. So yeah. Asians, they say, hey, this is bad. We want our kids to perform well. You have some an Asian lady gets elected to the school board. And to take over the rest of the term it was a recall election. And then what happened? So there's a woman named Ann Shu. And she uh, she she was the leader of this successful recall effort in San Francisco school board, got kicked out three um, woke school board members with the help of the Chinese American community in San Francisco, which makes up 22 percent of San Francisco. She was appointed by the mayor, London Breed, to get put back on to the school board as an appointment. But then there's an election in like that November. So um, uh so what happened was the NAACP in San Francisco and other progressives dug up some statements she made on a candidate questionnaire saying, uh, well, well, how are you going to solve the problems of facing the marginalized communities in San Francisco? And she said, I think one of the key problems is lack of family support and education, which is completely true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh Look, I mean, when you have a 75% single motherhood rate among, unfortunately, you know, a lot of the black um, parents in San Francisco that you tend to get that lack of family support. But they pounced on that as a racist statement. They called her a racist for saying that. Because you're making an observation. They're making a factually true observation. Yes, because she was making a factually true observation. They pounced on her for being a racist. And this is where I sort of... uh, blame her a little bit she did not have the understanding to understand the political forces of what they're trying to do with her she apologized she profusely changed her statements she refused to stand up for her own position on the mm. issue mm. and as a result she lost the respect of the, both the chinese community who actually wanted her to get in and also of course the progressives would never be convinced so she lost yeah yeah, in, well, in that's November. and that's an important lesson, right? That that unfortunately, on some of these issues, you have a core leadership on the progressive left. They're not actually interested in reason because this is a power move. This is about mm-hmm. winning and gaining political power. And their strat the strategy they have adopted is, in order for us to advance our political agenda, we have to tear down this inconvenient minority. Uh, And it's actually very similar if you look back at the history of Harvard, and I know you've talked about this and written about this, history of Harvard, the same thing happened to American Jews uh, in Harvard, where where they were academically doing very, very well. um, And basically, the Harvard leadership said, there are too many Jews at Harvard, so we need to change the standard. It's a similar sort of pattern that's happening now. And I think any time that you say the quote-unquote solution 
to a problem is to tear down a successful group of people or successful individuals. That's a terrible idea. We need to help them. We need to encourage it. Figure out what's working in the Asian community and get other communities to adopt those standards. The good news, Kenny, is if you do follow that historic trajectory, you're probably about three decades from being accused of dominating the media industry by Kanye West. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, things are looking uh, up. There we go. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I know. Exactly. Just uh, it, 30 years from now, they're going to say BTS is <laughs> is, uh, is responsible for America's decline. So. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. So so where do you think this goes uh, politically? I mean, we are the Government Accountability Institute. We focus on cronyism and corruption. Uh, this is cronyism because a lot of politicians adopt these policies because they are trying to curry support from leaders, I would argue, in the black community. It's also corrupt because there's money to be made here, right? I mean, the diversity industry, uh, there's a lot of money to be made and these contracts are being passed out. Um, where do you think this goes? Is it going to get worse or are you encouraged by what you're seeing with some of the school board activity, however small it is around the country? There does seem to be a, a, a sort of shift in parental involvement here. I would say, look, Asian political involvement is fast growing. It's fast rising and people should take advantage of it, but they should not assume like, oh, yeah, suddenly Asians are going to become a political behemoth. We, we have yet to raise that those kinds of leaders. Um you know, and, and those kinds of things. So we still need to work with people, but think about the values that we are fighting for. Think about the values, meritocracy, you know, just say, how about let's not have prejudice and let's just treat people on their merits solely on their merits. Okay. Don't look at their skin color, background, anything like that. That should be how society is organized. That's what, that is the real ideal at the heart of this. Um, the, the cronyism angle, I think that there are, if, but if we want to ever achieve that, I think you do have to directly take on the bureaucracy that is supporting the, the, the attack on Asian American achievement. It does have to be kind of crazy. I mean, I, I would love to get your perspective on, because you're not as old as me, you're not as old as Peter, you're 25 years old, right? So you're still a yeah. young guy. But for you to have gone through and uncovered just in the last decade, you go from, wait a minute, like you've got Ivy League institutions that are actively discriminating against the race of people. And you're looking for excuses not to admit them, partly because they overperform on the metrics you've said are important to you to determine who gets to be part of your club. Yeah. At the same time in the last decade, those the same culture that supports Ivy League institutions like Harvard or the same culture that, uh, that Harvard supports, I guess, is also now the reason why we have these diversity and inclusion trainings everywhere. You've got, you know, Disney, you hear all kinds of crazy, like people go out of their way to make everybody feel included. Uh, to, to comical extents, how does that make you feel? And just sort of like, it's got to like, wait, really? Wait, no, no, no. You guys, it's okay to discriminate against me, but, but yeah. if you have like a plus sign in your gender, then you get like your own bathroom. Like it's, like it's kind of insane. So I want to talk about the plus sign because I wrote this book, An Inconvenient Back Minority. I got published in 2021. I was writing it as early as late 2019 before anybody really cared so much, before a few, a lot of people cared about DEI diversity, equity, and inclusion. So Google, they had this, uh, by the way, Google's like 49% Asian mm. because of the number of software engineers, of right. course, in Google who happen mm -hmm. to predominantly be Asian. So they, they had this diversity, equity, and inclusion program. They brought in this $250,000 a year salaried uh, chief equity officer. And she said, we need to improve diversity and inclusion in our company. So what she did was she made preferential hiring and she actually made these groups 
one of these groups was called Black Plus. So if you're black, you know, you should have a use that as a plus factor in your hiring and promotion. And I, I just, I made a little snarky little comment in my book. I was like, so what, what's it now? Asian minus. So, <laughs> Unfortunately, it probably is. What I love know? about yeah. that is it's so on brand for you because it's a math joke. <laughs> <laughs> you look, I got to do it, man. <laughs> I, like I, 70% I, of those essay of 700s, guys. Come on. We got to keep, keep it up there. Guys, you guys got to buy my book because <laughs> if you don't buy my book, my parents might make me go back to a math career. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be working for Google. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Right. Do it for the country. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's really, I mean, to your point, this really is an assault on meritocracy. And the irony to me is, you know, why do people look to or why do they admire Harvard? Obviously, some people don't hire, admire it as much as they used to, but why do they? Because it, its basis is was supposed to be excellence, right? That it, it was the, the pinnacle of meritocracy. It was a sign that you arrived. They are completely destroying their brand. Well, think about this. Really, the most troubling thing about what you just said is that they they don't think they're destroying their brand, but what they've done is they're destroying the brand of excellence. Like they're redefining yes. excellence, mm-hmm. right? So yeah they, yeah, they would say, oh, we still stand for excellence. Yeah. But excellence right. is no longer like being so smart in engineering, we can send people to the moon, right? It's right. like, no, it's well... Everyone's experience is valuable. Yeah, right, right, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, Yeah, and the other thing is that that um, it you know diversity and inclusion. I mean, you know, we were talking about this earlier. The the concept of diversity is a good concept, but they've corrupted that that notion uh, of. But it's a slippery term. I mean, if you if you have a meritocracy, there are certain ways you can measure excellence, right? I mean, some of it is is test scores, some of it is grades, some of it is extracurricular. Those are all objective measures. Equity and inclusion. What does that mean? It can it can be defined however they want to define it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it means you can't measure success or failure. They can say that they're quote unquote succeeding, yep. but there's no way to know that. Yeah. Well, the the big measure is racial demographics of your university. That's the big measure of equity. So they, they say we need as many black students as we can possibly get at this university. Um, but okay, if you want to get 15% black students, you you can't admit based on merit because unfortunately- Black Americans make up less than 2% of the top math scores in our country um, and like less than 4% of the top English scores. So it's that that's just the reality. So you can't admit based. You have to admit preferentially to get that racially equitable ratio. And here's the the other irony of it. So like literally yesterday I went to a meeting uh, of parents who are zoned to send their kids to this middle school. The middle schools, let's just say, more diverse than the elementary schools that their <laughs> kids currently go to. Right. And so the principal literally has to come and to kind of talk about all the positive things to make essentially these scared white parents more comfortable with the idea yeah. that your child will go to a more diverse environment. So I do think that there's actually culturally this ironic thing. The same people that would espouse, it's so important that we get uh, people, we need as many, as much diversity as we can in these institutions, whether it's academic or professional. Otherwise, I think oftentimes are the ones that will, like, they don't walk it how they talk it, if you want to uh, say it. Yeah, they don't walk it how they talk it. And the thing is, you know, I'm I'm, I'm a parent. Um, you're a parent. Can he, Lord willing, you'll be a parent one day. I mean, okay. what do you care most about with your kids? You want them to um, grow up to be uh, well-rounded adults, 
um, that care about other people, that contribute to the community. And a lot of that is based on academic performance and learning skills and having knowledge that, w- that will allow them to function in life. Um, and so I imagine when these parents were talking, did the, did the uh, middle school teacher pitch that how great the academics were at this school? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They were. Is it true? Oh, it's, no, it's definitely true. So it is true. They, yeah. they, they pulled it off academically. Just because it's a diverse school doesn't mean it's not no, good. No, I'm, I'm just saying oftentimes when that becomes the issue, they shy away from those issues. Oh, That's what I'm trying no, to say. Yeah, well, I think what Peter's trying to say as well is that I think America is a very diverse country. We have people who pursue a lot of different paths, but people sometimes fail to forget that you can't just have diversity without meritocracy because y- – you have diversity and then you start compromising standards to let more diversity. And then that that's when diversity starts becoming a bad thing, y'all. Yeah. Yeah. And also uh, to your point, the left's version of diversity is we're going to have Asians, blacks, native Americans, and white Americans who all share the same view, who all share the same values. Mm-hmm, exactly. In other words, they don't, they, by diversity, they don't mean let's have uh, black Christians um, yeah. and, and, you know, white, they want to have a uniform view. It's, it's the most superficial, in my mind, measure of diversity there is, which is the only thing we care about is diversity of skin color. We don't want to have yeah. a diversity of views. No, that's absolutely right. It's one of the reasons why you're seeing, I think, what's happening in Florida now today, they're, they're actively attacking the higher educational institutions and and the lack of diversity when it comes to ideology there. And so you're seeing, I think, uh, the DeSantis administration is actively deciding to govern mm-hmm. and they're going to govern by, no, we, we do want to promote a diversity of thought. So you, I, that's a great way to put the left's version of diversity. The right's version of diversity, by the way, just so you know it, is to have uh, a white conservative best-selling author quote Amigo song, which you did earlier. So that's like, <laughs> <laughs> a what song? No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Kenny, give us some final thoughts. You are here visiting the state of Florida. You're in North Carolina. There is a lot of positive things that are going on at some of the state levels. We look at the horror stories in California, but Virginia we had a, have a new governor of Virginia that's yeah. doing some very exciting things here in, in Florida. What would you encourage people to do if they're concerned about this topic at a local level? How should they be engaging? Uh, because a lot of education policy is done at the local level, not yeah. at the federal level. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, uh, I would, here's what I would do. I would get a copy of my book or Peter's book or whatever. I would, you know, get a meeting with your local state legislator, you know, and I would say, Hey, you know, did you see this policy on the news? You know, this is your opportunity to take a stand and actually get some votes from people that you would not have otherwise appealed to by by talking directly about education. This is a winning issue, y'all. Um, and this is, uh, I think that there was a poll that said like one third of Democrats would support a president that, you know, said, you know, we should be teaching a patriotic history of the United States and you know, gender is between like one man and one, you know, sorry, sorry, gender is a man and a woman, yeah. you know, and I think DeSantis obviously is capitalizing off of that in Florida. So I, I would tell, sell the, sell your local politician on this, you know, great That's advice. What Eric, what are your final thoughts on this very complex and troubling issue? No, I, I do think just to be honest about it, right. And to, and to point out, say, listen, the people that advocate for diversity are often the least tolerant of actual diversity, whether it comes to ideological or otherwise. And I think, ironically, a lot of the efforts to promote diversity and 
I guess there's no better example than to say, look at what's happened to the United States test scores, you know, for yep. the third graders. Yep. We just lost two decades worth of learning gains because of the pandemic. And part of that's because, hey, you can't help it. We shut down schools. But I think also it also speaks to, look, what happened to that San Francisco school board? We're arguing over what schools to rename, not how to get the doors back open. And I think yeah. that that is actually that actively hurts the groups the most they claim they want to support because it was the black and the brown kids who lost the learning gains at a higher rate than their white and Asian counterparts. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would say, uh, join Colorist United, join our website at coloristunited.org. We are fighting against diversity, equity, inclusion. We stand for a colorblind meritocratic society. We will represent you in front of woke companies and other people trying to promulgate this ideology. And then finally, final thoughts is, Yes, um, affirmative action has a chance to be overturned at the Supreme Court, but the work still needs to be done. And specifically, why did we get this racial achievement gap in the first place? And I think that that's where the next terrain has to battle. Um, Why is critical race theory prevalent in the schools in the first place? So, yeah. Great sage advice. I'll just put it at a practical level. If I'm looking for a plumber or for a doctor, for a teacher for my kids, I don't care what their skin color is. I just want excellence. I believe in merit. Uh, I want to make sure that the surgeon who's going to perform surgery on me actually knows what he's doing. Um, And I think that's the way most people look at these issues. Joining us today has been Kenny Shu. I've known Kenny for a while. Uh, He's the president of Colorus United. He's a young man with already a long, impressive record of accomplishments. I encourage you to pick up his book, An Inconvenient Minority. It's terrific. He's committed to a race-blind America. Check out his organization and... Just to tease, he has a book coming out in August, so be sure to look at that. Thank you again for joining us. You can find this podcast and articles about the work we're doing at thedrilldown.com or at any place where fine podcasts are offered. Thanks again for joining us.